Time for Swordplay. Alex, a recent study has revealed that people spend more than 100 days of their life trying to decide what to watch on TV. Oh, man. That's terrible. If only we could all go back and live a subsistence lifestyle like our ancestors. You know, did the crops fail? Do we get to eat this year? It was so exciting and mysterious. Ah, the good old days. Am I right, Nick? Hmm? Nick? What? Oh, I'm sorry. I was adding content to my list on Netflix. Ah, this is Swordplay. <laughs> we are your hosts, offering double-edged perspective on Scripture. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we are talking First John, the introductory material. That's right, Nick. Usually in the past, we'll combine the introduction with the first chapter, but that typically results in an extra long episode, and so mm-hmm. we decided to uh, save our audience from that. We split it up, so just the introduction today, chapter one next week, and there are very interesting things, I think, in the background material, so let's jump into it, Nick. Who wrote the epistle of First John? Yeah, the epistle is anonymous, though tradition ascribes it to the Apostle John. Uh, Carson and Moo, in their introduction to the New Testament, they document the external evidence for the Apostle John's authorship of the epistles that we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, They cite how Papias was the first to refer to an epistle of John somewhere around the mid-2nd century, though others, such as Clement of Rome, who's uh, late in the 1st century, he does mention similar themes that are present in 1st John, like he talks about perfected love in 1st Clement 15 and verse 3, which is something that shows up here in uh, 1st John, as we'll see as we get deeper into the epistle. By the end of the 2nd century, Irenaeus attributes both the gospel and two epistles to John, quoting them in his work against heresies, book 3, chapter 16, uh, sections 5 through 8. So uh, the external evidence... Uh, certainly, do. and by the way, he's quoting from First John. I guess I should emphasize that uh, while he recognizes two epistles, First John is uh, cited uh, by Irenaeus in those sections. So you do have this external evidence pointing to the apostle John. The internal evidence begins with recognizing that the writer identifies himself as an eyewitness here in the opening verses. Uh, we have heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, our hands have touched. Uh, we have seen it. Uh, we have seen and heard, and that which we've seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So uh, he, with the apostolic college, has heard, seen, looked upon, or beheld, touched with his own hands the word of life. And accepting that the writer of the epistle is an eyewitness then, it remains to connect the epistle with the gospel, and thereby both documents would be composed by the same writer. And the styles are uh, very much identical in the gospel 
and the epistle, the internal evidence overwhelmingly connects the fourth gospel with this first epistle. Many themes are mentioned in both the gospel and the epistle. Examples include those who are of the devil and the devil being a murderer from the beginning, John 8 verse 44, and compare that with 1 John 3 and verse 8. Walking in darkness is mentioned in John 8, verse 12, and chapter 12, verse 35. And it's also mentioned in 1 John 1, verse 6, and 2, verse 11. Jesus is the Savior of the world in John 4 and verse 42, and also in 1 John 4 and verse 12. And eternal life being in the Son, or in His Son, is talked about in John 3, verse 36, and 1 John 5 and verse 12. There are also vocabulary connections. One excellent example is the use of the term monogenes, or unique, one of a kind. John uses that in the gospel in 1 verse 14, verse 18, 3 verse 16, uh, and also in 1 John 4 and verse 9. So all of this strongly points to the author of the fourth gospel being the same author of this first epistle, Carson and Moo, to cite them again, they argue uh, for two points for apostolic authorship. The we passages, that's distinguishing the writer from the community to which he's writing, the you. Um, and so uh, you have collectively also the distinction between uh, the Christian community, we, versus the world, who would be they, but the, the we, you passages do distinguish the author as an eyewitness in contrast to second or subsequent generations of believers. Uh, so those we passages, that's one point uh, that argues for apostolic authorship. And then second, based on the authority of being an eyewitness, this author of First John exerts cross-congregational uh, cross influence. Uh, that is, there's this anticipation that this isn't going to just one congregation, it's going to multiple congregations, and that further evidences that the author is an apostle. Uh, the first person singular is utilized often in order to exhort, I write. Uh, he says there quite a few times in chapter 2. So what do we make of all this? Well, the, the, the whole case, net-net, what you end up with, I believe, is a positive affirmation for apostolic authorship of 1 John. It's composed by even the same author, same writer as the fourth gospel that we call John. And uh, what you end up with is, this is the Apostle John. <laughs> That's a long way around, I guess. But <laughs> all the external and internal evidence points to the Apostle John being the author of what we call the first epistle of John. So that's what I see. Alex, what say you? I agree. You know, there are some who would say, yes, the Gospel of John and 1 John are from the same author, but since neither names the apostle, we don't know who wrote these works. And for this, I would point back to Irenaeus, as you already mentioned, and his attributing of the Gospel and epistle to the apostle John. Since Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, we thus have a strong and early witness to Johannine authorship. And it's Irenaeus' testimony that sets the standard of 
on the matter for future church historian Eusebius. You can read that in Eusebius's uh, Church History, uh, Book 3, Chapter 23. Now, we know from early church writings that John's anonymity as the beloved disciple in his gospel account was for theological purposes, namely that each disciple that receives the gospel and continues in it with belief is the beloved disciple of Jesus. So John meant this title then to be an application point and encouragement for future believers as they put themselves into the shoes of the beloved disciple, thus fulfilling Jesus' prayer that all would come to believe in him through the word of the apostles. It's John 17 verse 20. But this brings us then to our next question. That's right. So uh, if he doesn't name himself in the epistle, why, why does he do? Why doesn't he name himself uh, in this epistle, Alex? Right. So unlike John's gospel, I can't really find a theological reason for why John would remain unnamed in his letter. So here we are even lacking a pseudonym or title. There's no from the beloved disciple or from the elder or from the evangelist. So in short, we can't know for sure why John doesn't name himself in this epistle. It's possible that the original letter did have a greeting with John's name in it, but was later dropped off in subsequent uh, copies. That happens sometimes. Uh, this might explain the immediate jumping into of the first topic in the letter as opposed to a hello, I hope you're well. It's also possible, though, that 1 John was meant to be a circular letter, passed around wherever his gospel account had already been sent. The epistle is so heavily presupposed with language and ideas from John's gospel that to try and understand it separately from John's gospel would be challenging, to say the least. So if the audience knows John's gospel, then this letter acts as an important postscript that puts the application of the gospel into motion for the audience's particular circumstances. Thus, no title would be necessary, just a mirroring of John 1 with 1 John 1 to establish the connection. And that's what we see. What do you think, Nick? No, I concur that we, we cannot know for certain why John does not introduce himself. It seems similar to the book of Hebrews in that regard. Uh, later on, I'll, I'll argue, as you've pointed out here, that 1 John uh, seems to have been a circular letter, and so the presupposition of Johannine authorship by the original audience seems likely for why John doesn't identify himself outright. In other words, those to whom he wrote knew it was John, and so there was no need to identify himself. And in addition, assuming 1 John is a circular letter, this would also explain why there's no definite identification of a destination or an audience uh, in that regard. So uh, that's right. Be because it's a circular letter, that seems to be one of the reasons why it could be that John doesn't name himself. Right. And all of this is, is based on that strong connection between what we read in 1 John and what we read in John's Gospel. So what about the dating of the epistle of 1 John? When was it written? Again, to, to cite Carson and Moo, any date between 55 to 95 in the first century is possible. Now, some dates, however, are more plausible than others. Uh, also important to dating First uh, John is its relation to the Gospel of John. We've been talking about that. Assuming priority of the Gospel, uh, that it was first published before First John, the epistle, uh, assuming priority of the gospel, the date for composition of the epistle would, of course, come after the publication of the gospel. Now, the majority 
of scholars place the writing of this epistle in the final decade of the first century, sometime in the A.D. 90s. Uh, the patristic, uh, patristic evidence for this is substantial. Irenaeus tells how John lived into the reign of Trajan, and he was the emperor from 98 to 117. And Jerome pinpoints the date of the gospel's composition in A.D. 98. He talks about the 68th year after Jesus' passion. So majority position uh, seems to have uh, the weight of the external evidence for it. There are other minority positions which back the composition of both the gospel and the epistles into pre-AD 70 era. Uh, however, uh, I'm with Carson and Moo. They date the gospel to the early to mid-80s, maybe 80 to 85, somewhere in there. And with that date... Their historical reconstruction of the occasion of the need for 1 John is due to a proto-Gnostic misunderstanding of John's gospel. Some time has elapsed. We don't know how long, but some time has elapsed between the publication of John's, John's gospel and its circulation, and then the development of that misunderstanding by these early roots of Gnosticism, Gnosticism will not uh, fully flourish until the second century, but I believe you do have some early roots here, an incipient form of uh, Gnosticism. And so Carson and Moo's reconstruction, I th for me, it seems reasonable. And so the epistle can be dated in the late 80s to the early 90s in the first century. Uh, that's what I think. Alex, what say you? Uh, yeah, I too assume the dating of 1 John to be after John's Gospel. So let's talk about John's gospel for a second. The internal evidence of John's gospel points towards a post-8070 date of composition for several reasons. Uh, John's gospel is missing the Olivet Discourse, which is found in the Synoptic Gospels and prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem. Since Jerusalem gets destroyed in AD 70, John would have no use of the Olivet Discourse. That could be the explanation. John's gospel places tension in the narrative between a, a group that he calls the Jews and Jesus. But not all of the Jews in John's gospel are part of this group, only the ones who reject his word. Uh, this could be a reflection of Jewish Christian tensions at the time of writing that continued on, even post the destruction of Jerusalem. But the gospel in itself uh, then would be somewhat of an invitation to the Jewish audience still reeling and disillusioned from the destruction of the temple. So John is leaving open the opportunity to still accept Jesus' words. If the temple had already been destroyed, then John's emphasis on Jesus' teaching that his body, Jesus' body, was the temple, uh, which we see at the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel, as opposed to that teaching popping up at the end of uh, Jesus' ministry in Matthew and Mark. This would, I think, contextually fit better then in the wake of the physical temple being destroyed. John's gospel also focuses on belief which continues on beyond the signs of Jesus, based on the word of the apostles. This points towards a time in which the church needs to know how to follow Christ when the last eyewitnesses die. What should the second and third generation Christians do? All of this is to say that there's good reason to believe that John's gospel was written post AD 70, and thus 1 John, being written after the gospel, would put it towards the end of the first century. So, end of the first century, but there's the background for all of that. And it's, again, tightly connected to how we view 1 John based on its close connection to the Gospel of John. Now, who was 1 John written to? Talk about the audience here for a second, Nick. 
Yeah, John uses a number of terms of endearment for those to whom he writes. They are beloved in 2, verse 7, 3, verse 2, also verse 21, 4, verse 1, 7, and 11. They are siblings, brothers and sisters, in 3, verse 13. They are little children or even just children, 2, verses 1, 12, 18, 28, 3, verses 7, and 18, 4, verse 4, 5, verse 21. Now, these are all terms which denote that the original audience were Christians, and they're being addressed by the elder John. Uh, we've covered Second, Third John uh, in the archives. Go back and listen to those if you won't need a refresher on those, and we talk about the elder uh, and John's use of that there. So they are people who have experienced the forgiveness of all sin through the blood of Jesus. 1 verse 7 talks about that. And so therefore, since they have the Son, they have eternal life and they know it. 5 verses 12 and 13 talk about their having life and them knowing that they have eternal life. Where these Christians lived, now that's more difficult to identify. The epistle was, again, as we talked about, most likely a circular letter. It made rounds to several churches which are in fellowship with the church to which John belongs, and that was traditionally in Ephesus. So perhaps this was a circular letter to churches in the Lycus River Valley, uh, not unlike Paul's epistle known to us as uh, Ephesians, which was itself certainly a circular letter, uh, also not unlike those epistles that Jesus has dictated through John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, so uh, you do have precedent, it seems, for a circular letter in that particular part of the world. Now, assuming a circular letter, one would anticipate varying levels of maturity among the church members. And that is evident since John writes to fathers, but also to young men in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Also, there are those who seem to have been Christians from the beginning. Uh, he talks about them having the command from the beginning to uh, love one another. 2 verse 7 talks about that. Uh, although this, this could be a statement referring to the beginning of their Christian life, uh, as 2 verse 24 and also 3 verse 11 talks about. So uh, you do have those varying levels of maturity, and that is what we would expect from a circular letter. Uh, so Alex, what do you think? I agree. Um, I'll only add that the familial language John uses ties back theologically to his gospel. Quote, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. It's John chapter 1, verse 13. In the beginning of creation, Genesis 1 tells us how God spoke and created all things through his word. But John's gospel gives us the beginning of the new creation, those born also by the word of God, but this time the word of God wrapped in human flesh, Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 14. The first humanity descended from the first gardener, Adam, but the new humanity descends from the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who John makes sure to portray as a gardener by the empty tomb, John 20, verse 15. So when John names his audience as little children and siblings, it's more than a close relationship that we see. It's John's way of addressing the new humanity. And when John calls them beloved, it's more than those whom he loves, but also the ones who are now beloved disciples of Jesus, having received the apostles' word and continued in belief. 
Now, there's always some situation that comes about which causes a letter to be written. So what situation precipitated John's writing of First John? So there are a few assumptions that undergird uh, the historical reconstruction that I'm working f- from. Uh, first is the close connection between the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. Uh, Alex and I, we, we both recognize that. Uh, the priority of the Gospel with the subsequent epistles elucidating the content of that gospel. I believe we are in agreement about that. Right. Um, How about a fundamental misunderstanding by certain individuals who have read that gospel? I I believe that's what's going on here, again, with this proto-Gnostic business that has arisen. And, and also, again, an assumption concerning some period of time between the completion of the gospel, its circulation, and now the production of this epistle. Have you ever written something only to have it be misunderstood? I mean, it happens to everyone, right? Even when we are diligent to be as clear as possible. And this appears to have been what happened uh, with John and his gospel. And so we have this uh, an incipient form of Gnosticism that has distorted the message of John's gospel. Uh, indeed, John's gospel became a favorite of Gnostic heretics in the second century, despite John's clear portrayal of the word that became flesh. So with pastoral concern, John writes to further clarify the nature of Christ in sharp contrast with this proto-Gnostic error, this anti-Christian heresy. Many antichrists were assailing the church or the churches to whom John is writing. 2 verse 18, John tells us that. They are propagating a false gospel with a false view of Christ. It is resulting in another Jesus, a Christ that is opposed to the historical reality known by John and the apostles. And such a false gospel cannot bring true eternal life since only in the Son is there life. And so... What is needful at this time is continued faith in the unique Son of God. That is the order of the hour. So that's the historical reconstruction of the situation that precipitated this epistle for me. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, so going back to Irenaeus again, who knew Polycarp and Polycarp knew John. He says in Against Heresies, Book 3, Chapter 11, quote, John, the disciple of the Lord, preaches this faith and seeks by the proclamation of the gospel to remove that error which by Corinthus had been disseminated among men, and a long time previously by those termed Nicolaitans, who are an offset of that, quote, knowledge falsely so called, that he might confound them and persuade them that there is but one God who made all things by his word, end quote. It seems that the early church encountered false teaching, which distorted the nature and person of Jesus Christ, either by distorting his humanity or divinity through the denial of the incarnation. But John says, quote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Irenaeus explains in Against Heresies, book 1, chapter 26, that Corinthus wanted Jesus to be just a normal human born of Mary and Joseph, and that a spirit called Christ would empower Jesus from his baptism to his death. But this distortion leads to all kinds of other false teaching, like that of the Nicolaitans, as noted by Irenaeus. The Nicolaitans, just like they're mentioned in Rebuked for in Revelation, they indulge in unrestrained adultery and participation in idolatry. This behavior 
comes from the teaching that what we do in the flesh has no spiritual consequence. And that teaching was based on the false idea of Jesus being a man in the flesh, but Christ being a spirit separate from the flesh. Thus, we see why John would say, quote, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not Jesus has come in the flesh, but Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. See, Corinthians would never say that because he believes Christ is a separate spirit that is not in the flesh. But John says, no, the spirit from God says Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's 1 John 4, 2. So where does true false teaching come from? I don't think it comes from an innocent misunderstanding. I think that can be corrected. And perhaps John will do some of that correction. But what we have here through false teachers is a twisting of the of the text, the the intentional misconstruing of John's gospel. So what motivates the false teachers? What do they ultimately want? Well, John says, quote, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That's uh, 1 John 2.16. You know, just like in every episode of Law and Order, the bad guys are doing bad things for sex, money, or power, or a combination of those. The difference here is that these false teachers, these bad guys, they're covering their evil with theological error. And John wishes to expose them, to strip that away and to show who they really are and why they do what they really do. So to summarize the purpose then, Nick, why was First John written? Yeah, I'm taking the angle that John writes this epistle to combat that proto-Gnostic heresy by presenting further elucidation of the Lord Jesus Christ as presented in his gospel and through this presentation and belief in the true Christ, his readers would have fellowship with God, with the apostolic college, and thereby have eternal life in the Son. That's what I see as the purpose. What do you think, Alex? I think John writes to expose the false teaching, which led to the settled practice of sin within their community, and to also affirm those who are holding to the apostolic teaching that they are still walking in the light. Nick, why did you talk to us for a minute about the different uh, themes and uh, the main emphasis that we see in this epistle? Aiken, in his commentary, the uh, New American Commentary, he on First John, he notes that 80% of the verses in First John reflect themes and emphases from the Gospel of John. And uh, we, we've been working toward that, uh, making those connections. I think, Alex, you've been doing a really good job of making those connections. There is a strong connection between the Gospel of John and First John. We would expect that because they're both written by John the Apostle. Uh, let me emphasize just a, a handful of emphases. You have in First John a, a rich Christology. Who is Jesus? The person of Christ is at the heart of everything John writes, whether it's the gospel, his epistles, or the revelation. If you want to know who Jesus is, read John closely. In the epistles, the emphasis is on the word of life. Here, especially in 1 John uh, 1 verse 1, concerning the word of life is how that first verse closes. But that word of life has manifested historically in the person of Christ. 
Now, liars deny that Jesus is the Christ, and therefore they don't have the Son. He talks about that in 2, verses 22 through 23. Any spirit that does not confess the same Jesus as the apostolic college, even the same Jesus as the Spirit has revealed, that, uh, that Spirit is not from God. 4, verses 2 and 3. And you can also compare that with Second John, verse 9. What you say about Jesus... That is the most important thing to John, which is related to the second main emphasis, uh, emphasis which is theology. Who is God? Well, John says God is love uh, in 4 verse 8 and verse 16 here in 1 John. So God's essential nature is rooted in his immeasurable love for us expressed in Christ. Now, people love. God is love, right? They love that. But at the same time, let us not forget, God is light. And in fact, that's how this epistle begins way back in 1 verse 5. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So God's essential nature is rooted in his infinite holiness and purity, which cannot fellowship darkness at all. God cannot fellowship darkness at all. No sin can come into his presence. So what you say about God is the most important thing to John. See what I did there? Christology, theology, most important. Anyway, um, Christian living, another important theme in 1 John. How Christology and theology impact your daily living. And two things come into clear view. You have the complete renunciation of sin in 3 verses 6 through 10. The practice of sin. To, to, to practice sin while claiming fellowship with God. It's not just contradictory or oxymoronic. It is outright devilish to John. And so the emphasis is on a habitual practice, not the occasional sin which a child of God does commit as a result of the world, the flesh, the devil, uh, a sin not unto death, I believe is what is in view there in 5 verse 17. But true Christians must seek to live as Jesus lived, he says in 2 verse 6. But also you have the emphasis on loving one another, as a demonstration of Christian living. And there are uh, a couple of major sections where John deals with this in chapter 3, beginning in verse 11 and following, and also chapter 4, beginning in verse 6 and following. The Christian ethic is primarily demonstrated through love for fellow believers. Failure to love your brother, your sister, that puts you in the company of Cain, who slaughtered his brother. So Christian living, definitely a key emphasis, a key theme in First John. Finally, you do have these antitheses. You have contrasts and polarities, and there are several. There's the contrast between uh, Christians and the world in uh, 2 verses 15 through 17, also 5 verse 19. You have the contrast, the, the polarities of light and darkness in 1 verse 5, which I quoted earlier, verse 7 as well in, in chapter 1, 2 verses 9 through 11. You have the, the contrast, the antithesis, antithesis of death and life, 3 verses 14 and 15, 5 verses 16 and 17. You have the contrast between faith and unbelief, uh, and that really pops in uh, 5 verse 10, about believing in the Son versus not believing in the Son. And then, of course, you have love and hate. Uh, in two verses, nine through 11, three verses, 11 through 15, and four verses, seven and eight. There's no middle ground when it comes to John. And, and uh, that's by definition and, and intentional. Uh, it, there's love and there's hatred. There's faith, there's unbelief. There's life, there's death. There's light, there's darkness. There's Christians, and then there's 
everything else in the world. So uh, these are some of the main emphases that I see uh, that come up again and again in First John. All right. Well, folks, I think that will cover it as far as First uh, John introduction material. And look at that. We did it in half an hour. <laughs> we were flying by today. Well, that's right. Thir- 30 minutes or less or it's free. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps us up for First John. The introductory material will jump into Chapter 1 next week. But uh, we're going to leave you today with another Q&A from the audience. That's right. And so we have a question here from Aldrin, and it's regarding uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm chapter 83, uh, specifically verse 4. And we'll read that Psalm in a moment. But he says, I wonder how this passage plays into the whole Palestine-Israel conflict. He's talking about the modern conflict. How do you distinguish Israel as a sovereign state from the ancient biblical nation of Israel? The difference between what we see established in 1948 and then what we see as referred to the House of Jacob in the Bible. So how do we distinguish between those? How does that play into today's modern geopolitical conflict? Nick, tell us what you think about that. (laughs) That old chestnut, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. So I guess let's back up and talk about method first. Um, There are a few interpretive views concerning modern-day Israel. Uh, There's one view that says that modern-day Israel is renewed Israel. So when Israel became a nation in 1948, it signaled the fulfillment of a number of biblical prophecies, especially biblical prophecies found in the Old Testament. So that's one interpretive view. Uh, And then there's, uh, I guess, the the contrast to this would be that modern-day Israel is not renewed Israel. And so when Israel became a nation in 1948, it was the same as any other sovereign nation that comes into existence. Uh, And then, of course, the question becomes, well, what about the prophecies that seemingly are addressed to the nation of Israel in Scripture? And I suppose there are two options for that. One is that those Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel are taken up and fulfilled in Christ and his church. There's a second option, I suppose, that would be, well, the Old Testament prophecies still apply to Israel, but they're yet to be fulfilled. So how do you end up with these particular positions? Well, one's hermeneutic, uh, the method whereby a person interprets the, the scriptures. I believe that is what will determine which camp you arrive at, specifically how one interprets prophetic literature. Do you interpret it literally? Do you interpret it figuratively? Um, How consistent are you in applying that interpretive framework? Uh, And and I believe that will bring you into one of these, or at least it can bring you into one of these particular uh, viewpoints. So, um, given these considerations, then what 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 are we to make of? Psalm 83, specifically verse 4 here. Uh, Well, let's back up. There is a superscription here. It's a a song, a psalm of Asaph. And, uh, I mean, even then we have to ask, well, who's Asaph, right? Who is Asaph? Uh, And he seems to have been a contemporary of uh, David. Right. Uh, He was a guy who was in charge of the music, uh, in in the worship of God, uh, 
one of the musicians, one of the singers. Uh, and so uh, you can read about him in First and Second Chronicles. His name shows up uh, quite a few times. But he does write several psalms. In fact, Psalm 83 is kind of the, the closing of a, a section of about 10, 11 psalms, 73 to 83 uh, in the Psalter uh, that are ascribed to Asaph. So here he is. He puts a pen to scroll, as it were, and he writes, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. And now verse 4, which was the uh, key verse uh, that Aldrin picked up on here. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. And then verses 5 through 8 you have a listing of those enemies. There are Edomites, Ishmaelites, Moabites, Hagrites, Gebelites, Ammonites, Amalekites, uh, Philistines, uh, Asherites, uh, children of Lot. Uh, Asher there would seem to be Assyria. Uh, so, yeah, that's a very, very interesting passage here. So, so what do we do? Well, let's take the uh, literal interpretation viewpoint, shall we? Uh, that framework as it pertains to this particular psalm, a poetic psalm, and perhaps even uh, prophetic in some sense, right? Well, prophecy that speaks concerning the house of Israel, the house of Jacob, is strictly applicable to Israel and Israel only. So in Asaph's day, uh, even before Asaph, you have Israel's enemies, the Edomites, Moabites, all the rest. They have always sought to wipe them out. So that's what it is with Israel today. The renewed Israel, uh, because we've seen Ezekiel 36 come to fruition, right? And God has brought those bones, dead bones, back to life. And that's what is the modern state of Israel is. And so she's surrounded by her enemies who seek to wipe her out. And so verse 4 has contemporary application in that regard. What is needed is deliverance from God, even like that which God did in the time of the judges, which is mentioned in verses 9 through 12 of this psalm. Uh, even the kind of deliver, deliverance that Ezekiel prophesies concerning Gog and Magog in what? Chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. So uh, that's kind of what you end up with when it comes to a, a literal interpretive framework. Um, all prophecy that speaks to Israel is exclusive to Israel and cannot be applied to any other group, including the church. Okay, so that's one view. Another viewpoint, another option could be a figurative framework. And that would view then Psalm 83 as uh, applicable to the church. The church is the Israel of God under the new covenant, Galatians 6 and verse 16. It is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12 and verse 21. And you know, she is surrounded by enemies who seek to destroy her, has been ever since the beginning. Uh, empires and physical opponents, but also we could talk about the spiritual forces that are at work to undermine and destroy the, uh, the church. And so uh, powerful, powerful forces that aim to make the existence of the church a distant memory. But God will deliver his church, and he will punish uh, them and will publish the greatness of his name over all the earth. And that's how Psalm 83 Kind of closes in verses 13 through 18. So 
that's, again, another interpretive move that could be made, a figurative framework. I like the model that has been uh, put forward here recently uh, by contemporary scholars. J. Daniel Hayes published an article in Bibliotheca Sacra uh, back in 2001 uh, presenting a model for applying Old Te- the Old Testament law specifically, but the Old Testament applying it today. And he has five interpretive moves. One, you need to identify the original meaning of the text. Uh, Second, you need to recognize the time and space differences between when this was written and then where we are today. Second, you distill universal, or third, you distill universal principles from the text. Then the fourth step is you identify uh, correlation in the uh, New Testament before finally, step five, applying that modified universal principle to life under the new covenant. I like that. It's called principalism. Uh, F. Lagarde Smith, uh, he uh, put forward a similar model, only his had like three steps. <laughs> In his book, The Cultural Church, there was identify the purpose of the text originally, uh, distill the principle from the passage, and then look to establish precedent in the present context. So three steps, five steps. I I think principalism has a lot to go forward. And so working from a principalism framework would view this as having value when first written with continued value throughout the history of God's people. So for Israel in Asaph's day and throughout her existence, she was always imperiled by a variety of enemies. Was there a specific incident that kicked this off? It's hard to find one, especially with Assyria. Uh, I read somewhere, I can't remember where, but the closest you get is somewhere in Second Chronicles, um, but uh, during the reign of one of the kings. But uh, you don't have a specific incident where all of these enemies are coming against it. That's recognized. But Nevertheless, she has had a variety of enemies, but God has historically delivered his people and is trustworthy to respond when his people call for deliverance. And so those principles get carried across the bridge of time for the church today. And so as God's people today, a holy nation, yeah, we're still imperiled by a variety of enemies, physical and spiritual. But the same God, Yahweh, he is trustworthy to hear and to respond to our calls for deliverance. So that's, that's where I kind of land, I believe, is that third position uh, that uh, helps to serve, uh, to bring this about so that it is consistently applicable to the people of God throughout time and space. Again, Asaph wrote this. It's part of the Psalter, and it's something that the people of Israel sang for, what, a thousand years? And even Jewish people continue to sing it today, right? So, uh, but... Uh, in terms of having immediate application for the day and in the worship of Israel up to the establishment of the church, and so what does it mean for us today as the people of God? I think principalism, again, has a lot going for it. So, wow, that was a long way around the mountain, but (laughs) Alex, what say you about uh, Aldrin's question? Well, I probably fall somewhere between your second and third options, between the figurative framework and the principal framework. Um, Although... I don't like the the uh, the wording there. It, it, it's to me it, it gets confusing because some people who say they're they're liber- literal in- interpreters, uh, everybody interprets some things literal and some things figurative. Sure, right. So uh, 
it can get a little misleading by saying this is the literal one, this is the figurative one. One's good, one's bad. It's just like, uh, that's not really how the ancient readers read their Bible, but let's say I fall between option two and three, a mixture of figurative and, and principle framework. Um, my take on Psalm 83 is that it does have some eschatological overtones. Um, a lot of the Psalms do, actually. We're going through the Psalms this year on Sunday mornings, and so... Um, we're, you know, getting towards the end of the, the 30s. We're going one psalm, one or two psalms at a time. And a, a lot of the psalms have messianic overtones, right? Things that will come to pass when Jesus comes as the Messiah. But a lot of psalms also include end of time stuff, stuff at the final day of judgment um, and the day of resurrection. And so, but those same psalms do have an element of understanding for the current audience or the current particular circumstances which David finds himself in. And so there are all three of those things going on sometimes in, in many of those Psalms. So my take on Psalm 83 is that there does seem to be some eschatological overtones. All of the enemies listed in verses 6 through 8 never historically come together at one time to attack Israel, but they're various enemies throughout different ages of the Old Testament. And yet in this psalm, it does picture them as, quote, conspiring together with one mind. And since these uh, nations don't literally exist anymore, and I, I don't expect these nations to like pop up into existence uh, again, it would seem that this is a picture simply of all of Yahweh's enemies coming together at once to launch a massive attack. And this dark alliance of enemy forces in the biblical worldview would necessarily assume that the true alliance uh, taking place is being done by the forces of darkness in the heavenly realms, the gods, the Satan, the demons, etc. So who are they attacking? If we cross-reference the Septuagint, verse 4, which is uh, verse 5 in the Septuagint, it says, Let us destroy them from the nations. And it's debatable whether that's singular or plural on nations. We'll destroy who from the nations? Verse 4 in the Septuagint says, your holy ones. In the Greek, that's hohagios, which is typically translated in the New Testament as saints. And so who are the holy ones or saints among the nations from which God's enemies would seek to destroy? Uh, it seems to me in the New Testament that that's the church. That's, that's the only candidate. But I do understand that there are other hermeneutical approaches that would have uh, a time in the future where this massive conversion of Jews takes place, where they become Christians across the whole world, and then they start immigrating back to the nation of Israel, and then that precipitates a final battle at the end of the age. To which I say, great, <laughs> sure, I'm open to whatever converts more people over to Christ. And it is a debatable hermeneutical issue. So my main concern from all of this is that we don't want to diminish the church as being a separate people of God, or Gentile Christians as being second-class citizens. I think such a diminishing would violate the high ecclesiology laid out by the Apostle Paul, which is why some people in the past, and even today, have opted to reject Paul. <laughs> so, uh, But here's the other side. I also don't think that it's right for us to embrace any flavor of anti-Semitism. Right. I mean, if God has a card up his sleeve, which will win over ethnic Israel at the end of the age, then that's awesome. That's great. Let them come and be joined to the one body of Christ. Uh, there's one body. There is no longer Jew or Gentile in that body, but one new humanity in Christ. 
unless you reject the Apostle Paul, then I guess you can come up with a different system. But I would say that however uh, we view the sovereign state of Israel, that uh, for me is a different matter than what Psalm 83 says. Geopolitically speaking, it is in the best interest of the United States to be allies with Israel for a variety of reasons. And allies should help each other. That's the whole point of being allies. But I don't think the driver of that bus should be a particular theological bent. Uh, even though it, it is logical to ally oneself with a nation that holds to a similar worldview. And the nation of Israel does hold a similar worldview. Plus, most of the other Middle Eastern nations hate us. So who else would we be allies with? So there are two separate things going on here. Biblical interpretation and then also uh, geopolitical um, considerations. And so... I hesitate to mix those two together uh, too much, <laughs> maybe a little bit, but not not uh, so much that it would become um, this uh, indisputable matter of eschatology or hermeneutics. But that is what it has become in some, I think, Christian groups. It's become a matter of indisputable uh, eschatology, indisputable hermeneutics, and if you, if you don't see it that way, you are, you know, false teacher, and get out of here. <laughs> so, um, that's my take. So I would say that, um, yeah, that's a hard question. So hopefully was, we yeah, we spoke question. to it. Yeah, it was a great question. So hopefully we spoke to it a little bit. I don't know if we if we could summarize it into one little thing because it is it is layer upon layer of complexity. So thanks for asking that question, Aldrin. Any, do you have any other final thoughts, Nick? Uh, just that that closes the uh, foreign policy part of the sword That's clip. Right. <laughs> That's right. And this is this has been another uh, state of the nation address from uh, the sovereign, uh, the sovereign nation of swordplay. No, but I think we're in agreement that uh, to speak directly to the question: How do you distinguish Israel as a sovereign state from the ancient biblical nation of Israel? It, it will come down to your. Uh, the the interpretive framework that you use for prophetic literature is that fair? Are we in agreement yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah, probably. Because I agree that you, you, you want to interpret like gospels literally, right? Unless there's prophetic literature that's found in there that could be interpreted in a figurative way, I suppose. But there there are uh, genres of scripture that we do interpret literally. However, when it comes to um, prophetic literature, which has a tendency to be highly figurative, uh, we do tend toward. Uh, well, I guess I'll just speak for me. I tend toward a more figurative framework uh, and seek to distill the the principles uh, from that. Um, and but that's that's one of the knocks on uh, from our friends who take a literal view of uh, prophetic uh, literature is well you're being inconsistent in how you interpret scripture uh, because you should take all of it literally right so yeah. it I mean it, it it does get down into the sticky wicket but uh, yeah to, to, I mean, yeah I feel like we do take everything literally though <laughs> that's the problem with the the way that they're using the word literalism is um, you're making you're making a, a two separate things literal versus figurative and you're setting them up against each other as if it's one it's, you should pick one or the other and then you have to be consistent with that i just don't think that's how the ancient reader was reading any of their bible whatever type of literature it was within the bible whether it's prophetic literature or historical uh narrative 
or wisdom literature, I don't think in the ancient mind there was this clear divide between what should be read literally and what should be read figuratively. Uh, I, I think it was always both. I think it was always both in play, and it was it was less in, it was less interpreted by uh, this dedication to literal versus figurative, and more interpreted by the overall worldview which they held. And so, uh, and that's just how language works. I mean, language always has both literal and figurative in its speech. Uh, all types of literature, you can pick up a newspaper, and it's supposed to be about the facts, about what's happening. Uh, and in there will be metaphors and figures of speech. <laughs> and so, so you can't get away from it. Language has both literal and prophetic, uh, I mean, literal and figurative uh, literal and metaphoric, it's always both together. That's part of an entire like language. That's part of how we communicate. Because then, you know, how do you communicate like things that are not concrete? You know, like like these ideas, these higher non-concrete ideas. You have to use metaphoric language, figurative language, to communicate those. But it doesn't take it outside of like a literal historical event or interpretation. It's just it's the way we couch these things in language <laughs> so anyway i reject the two choices <laughs> i'm not going to pick i reject the one choice over the other literal versus figurative it's got to be both and guiding that has to be the worldview of the ancient reader congratulations aldrin you just we, we just broke the record for <laughs> longest answer to a question <laughs> uh good questions though yep definitely well, everybody keep sending in your questions uh this is this is good stuff makes for uh, a great study great conversation and if uh people have more questions send them into swordplaypodcast at gmail.com email them to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com or you can text them into the uh, text line what's that number nick 316-24-SWORD that's 316 247 nine six seven three also we are streaming on a number of platforms not only are we on itunes we're also in spotify and uh, amazon music google music uh, so uh, get the word out uh, sub subscribe in your particular format leave a review that'll help uh, boost the rating in those respective places and uh, if you leave a written review we will read it on air. We've already been doing that with uh, uh, reviews that listeners have left. It's awesome. We're grateful for each one of you listening and helping us get the word out about the podcast. That's right. And if you leave a written review, you will be entered into a raffle for free swordplay swagger. So That's right. Swag. Stuff we all get. Go get your entry in there. Grab some free swagger. We'll send it to you. Um Right now, you have a really good chance of getting something. I think like a one in four chance, and so, <laughs> <laughs> so keep uh, keep spreading the word. We appreciate your support and your encouragement in this podcast. Of course, we are uh, creating this as a tool and a help for you, oh diligent listener. So next time, we will see you for our material regarding first chapter of first sean thanks for tuning in to another episode of swordplay your double-edged perspective on scripture <laughs>